Hey Conjurers, it's Steph. We have some exciting news to share with you. A few months ago, the Oxygen Network reached out to us and asked us to help them cover the case we covered on our very first episode of this podcast. September 18th, you'll be able to watch me and Sham in our TV debut on Snapped Season 31, Episode 10. So, in preparation, we decided to re-release our original covering of that case to get you up to speed before we continue uncovering the truth behind the crazy Illinois hex murder on your TV screen this weekend. All right, let's dive into this episode again. Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. And today we have a crazy story for you that may sound more like fiction than reality. Picture this. Seances, witchcraft, hexes, and a conspiracy to murder a teenage girl. Sham, I don't know about you, but I have often heard this story misreported as a bunch of teenagers messing around with witchcraft. I heard they naively believed that they had been hexed and that they thought the only way to break the hex was to murder the girl who had hexed them. But that is not what happened. The five people who conspired to murder a pregnant 16-year-old girl in a small town in Illinois were all grown adults, ranging from 19 to their late 30s. This case is actually much darker than it appears at first glance. Why isn't this a more widely known case? Well, at that exact same time, what would become Hurricane Katrina was brewing and the United States was on alert. That led to low media coverage outside of that local area. Okay, so seances and witchcraft? This is right up our alley. It is. So around 3 a.m. on August 23, 2005, Two men, Oscar Eck and David Lindner, broke into a house in the small town of Claremont, Illinois, wearing gloves and ski masks, intent on killing 16-year-old Lindsay Cassinger. These were not professional criminals, and they hadn't counted on the dogs of the house barking while they were breaking in. The noise woke up the owner's girlfriend, Jacqueline Bennett. Her boyfriend, Lee, was at work, so she wandered out to the kitchen to see what was going on. Before she knew what was happening, someone tackled her to the ground and started stabbing her in the chest and stomach. I cannot imagine waking up to someone in my home, let alone someone attacking me. It's one thing to break into my home and take things. It's another thing to be the target they're looking for. Plus, there's not one intruder here, but there's two to fight off. Oh, I feel the same. I always make my husband check out any sounds I hear in the night because I know he would be way more capable against an intruder than me. Oh, yeah, same. So what happens next? Well, luckily, her son Joshua Bennett was visiting while on leave from the army. He entered the kitchen to find a man in a ski mask stabbing his mother, and he yanked the man away from her. Joshua was taken off guard, though, when the man turned around and sprayed him in the face with pepper spray. The intruder then started to stab Joshua in the chest as well. During this struggle, Jackie Jackson who was sleeping with his girlfriend Lindsay in the basement, grabbed his shotgun and bounded up the stairs towards the commotion. The scene he found when he opened the basement door made his blood run cold. One masked intruder was standing in the living room and a second was in the kitchen stabbing Joshua. Oscar lunged at Jackie from the living room and sprayed him in the face with pepper spray, but it had no effect. Jackie hit him in the face with the butt of his shotgun, knocking Oscar to the ground. 
The second man brushed over and tried to take the gun, but Jackie wasn't letting it go without a fight. Oscar jumped up and joined the struggle for the gun, and it discharged, shooting David in the gut. Oscar then pulled out a knife and tried to stab Jackie, but accidentally stabbed his own leg instead. Jackie took this opportunity to throw the man down the basement stairs. Lindsay ran from the house screaming for help. She told the neighbor that people had broken into her house and they had knives. The neighbor entered the Jackson residence and saw one man fleeing the scene, bleeding from the leg, and the other intruder was lying on the kitchen floor next to Jacqueline and Joshua. Okay, so that Jackie guy single-handedly stopped both intruders. Right? He's kind of a badass. Yeah. So get this. After removing the intruder's mask, Jackie recognized David as a man he had seen a couple days before at Jackie's ex-girlfriend Irina's house. Medical first responders and police arrived quickly, but sadly Joshua died that night from his stab wounds. His mom Jacqueline survived, but was then faced with the tragic loss of her son. David spent the next few months hospitalized in critical condition before also passing away from his wounds. Ex-girlfriend? Wait, what are we talking about? Yeah, so after Oscar escaped, he hurried to his friend Irina Kotner's house to hysterically tell her how horribly wrong the plan had gone and that David had been shot. They then drove to Walmart to pick up their friend Ginny Wolf, who told her boss she needed to go home sick. From there, they headed to Oscar's house, where his roommate, Misty Gangloff, tried to attend to his injuries, but the stab wound on his leg was more than she could handle. He needed a hospital. Well, that sounds like a terrible idea. Right? The group set out for the hospital anyway, but made a detour to East Fork Lake to dispose of the clothes and boots Oscar had been wearing during the break-in. The police arrested Oscar at the hospital and brought the girls in for questioning. This is all really interesting, but it sounds like an open and shut case to me. What does all this have to do with witchcraft and hexing? Well, that's where it gets interesting. And the police were not at all prepared for the story they were about to be told by this unusual group of friends. Irina, Jenny, and Misty all worked together at the local Walmart and had been close friends for many years. Early in 2005, Irina confided to her friends that she believed her ex-boyfriend's new girlfriend, Lindsay, had put a hex on her. As they played with the possibility of a hex, they decided Misty's bouts of depression and frequent migraines could be a sign that she was also hexed. Jenny soon also came to believe that the signs were pointing to a hex that had been placed on all three of them. That's a weird assumption to have, and it really sounds like jealousy to me. They really seemed to believe it, though. Starting in April, the girls met dozens of times to discuss how to get rid of the hex. Irina started to suggest that the only way to break the hex was to kill the person who had cast it. They started stalking Lindsay, who was pregnant at the time, driving by her house and her boyfriend Jackie's house several times and learning her routines. That's so creepy. Now, I know we don't always know who's driving by our house, but you would think her neighbors would have noticed this unknown vehicle. I'm surprised no one had seen them. If you look at the pictures of the area, it's not a busy road either. It's okay to be the nosy neighbor if you see a suspicious car coming around that never seems to visit anyone. Please tell me that this is the furthest they went. No, Irina even purchased a gun. The three girls met on the outskirts of town to practice firing the weapon. They tried out pillowcases and milk jugs as makeshift silencers, but it was still too loud to use in a residential neighborhood. At this point, Misty brought her roommate Oscar into the fold. He also worked with the girls at Walmart. Oscar had dabbled in witchcraft, and they tried a spell to cure Misty of her depression and migraines. They claimed the spell backfired and expanded the hex, 
Irina performed a seance and convinced Oscar that he was also now hexed by Lindsay and his family and friends would die if she and her baby continued to live. Anyone that suffers from depression, including myself, knows it's not curable. It's not something witchcraft can fix. It's all about maintaining and focusing on your mental health. Killing someone is not the cure, girl. That plan was destined to fail. I agree. There are no magical fixes for mental health. So in August, things started to ramp up. Irina and Jenny attempted to set fire to the Cassinger home, but failed. Jenny even went alone one night to the Jackson home, intent on killing Lindsay herself, but she only got to the edge of the yard before deciding against it. So this is when Oscar found and brought in David to help. Irina convinced him through seances that he too would be hexed if he didn't help kill the girl. David and Jenny made it as far as the front door with a gun and a knife before Jenny yet again called it off. Jenny claimed she was too afraid. She kept telling him she couldn't do it and she ran like hell. I'd run too, girl. (laughs) So things started to get a little too real for Misty at this point and she started trying to distance herself from the group. She claimed she didn't tell the police about the plot because she didn't believe anyone had actually been serious about hurting Lindsay. I mean, that's a big enough threat from a group who clearly isn't thinking logically to say something, just in case. If you're not going to tell the police, you could have at least warned the castingers. Right? I mean, they're talking about killing someone. The night before the break-in, Irina held a seance with the group. She claimed she could interpret the flickering of the candles and the spirits had a message. She told the group Lindsay Cassinger and her unborn baby must die and anyone else in the house must be hurt. She told Oscar and David to break into the Jackson house and kill Lindsay, then take her bra to an open road and cast a spell on it to end the hex. The men were understandably nervous, so Irina assured them that they would be accompanied by five sub-demons to protect them. What? Okay, hold up. This is starting to sound more like a cult and Irina is definitely the ringleader here. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and can I just say that what I know about witchcraft suggests that it is a peaceful religion and actually has nothing at all to do with the devil or demons. This sounds like some twisted way for Irina to control her friends. Absolutely. So in the wee early hours of August 23rd, Irina lit a special candle and told them that they had to have all of this done by the time the candle burned down. If they failed to do so, they would be taken instead. David and Oscar left the seance in a hurry to complete their task. They drove by the Jackson house to make sure Lindsay was there, and then headed to Walmart to buy gloves and ski masks. Sham will tell us what happened after they got caught when we come back. As Steph mentioned before, David died from a gunshot wound to his stomach six months after the incident, so he was not charged. Misty pleaded guilty to conspiracy and cut a deal to testify against the others. She ended up being sentenced to seven years in prison, but was released on parole after only three years. She only got three years? Yes, girl, only three. Oscar pleaded guilty to murder and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Irina and Jenny both pled not guilty and went to trial to have a jury of their peers decide their fate. The others all insisted that Irina was the conspiracy mastermind and manipulated them all. Misty, Oscar, Jenny, and her ex-boyfriend Jackie all testified against Irina. In Jenny's trial, the jury deliberated less than five hours before finding her guilty of three counts of first-degree murder, one count of conspiracy to commit murder, and one count of home invasion. 
The prosecutors had made an informal deal with Jenny that if she testified against Irina, they would agree to 25 years or less for her sentence. The judge, however, disagreed with this bargain and sentenced her to 37 years in prison. I didn't know a judge could go back on a deal like that. Still, Jenny will only be in her 50s when her sentence is over. She could still have a life after prison. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a long enough time in my opinion. I mean, the girl tried to kill someone. Right? So anyways, Irina's trial was the most sensational. She tried to claim that she had no idea any of this was happening. Irina said Oscar and David were at her house earlier that evening just hanging out, but that Oscar left to take Jenny to work and David left when Irina went to bed. According to Irina, the next thing she knew, Oscar was waking her up in the early hours of the morning. What she couldn't explain was the fact that not a single person in the group other than her had ever met Lindsay and had no reason to target her. Prosecutors put forward their belief that Irina manipulated her friends into believing in the hex because she was jealous of the relationship between Lindsay and her ex-boyfriend Jackie. And I have to agree with the prosecutors on this one. That's an extreme action to take for jealousy, but definitely makes more sense than a hex by a girl they didn't even know. The jury deliberated for two hours and found Irina guilty of first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and home invasion. She was sentenced to 57 years in prison. Misty, Oscar, and Ginny all showed remorse for their parts in the plot to kill Lindsay that resulted in the death of Joshua. Irina, on the other hand, showed no remorse, and she insisted she had nothing to do with it. When the jury found Irina guilty, this girl screamed, kiss my ass, as they led her out the courtroom in handcuffs. Wow. Right, you're sounding real guilty right about now. Surprisingly, this isn't the last we hear from Irina Kotner. Crazy enough, Irina continued to appeal her conviction. She claimed she deserved a new trial because she was not made aware of a deal for a testimony against her, and by law, all deals must be public record. In addition, she claimed her alibi witness was not called and the criminal record of David was not brought out in court. She insisted all of this had bearing on her case. A judge actually motioned for a review of her claims and gave her the opportunity to provide that proof. She actually got a second chance. Except... What Irina provided to the judge as proof was more like a rambling rant of an angry ex-girlfriend than proof of injustice, which I don't doubt. It's obvious she's a jealous person. (laughs) She provided a statement from a paralegal at the prosecutor's office that said she had a conversation with Jackie's stepmother, Cheryl, who had told her that the charges against Jackie were dropped after several visits from the state attorney's office. The statement was not sworn before a notary, So, legally, it was just a rumor. Wait, charges? What charges? Girl, she's crazy. Like, I don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) Irina also provided a signed affidavit from some random woman who had observed the trial. This woman, Angela Hauser, stated that during a break on the third day of the trial, she saw a prosecutor place his hand on Jackie's shoulder in a somewhat fatherly manner and say, and I quote, don't worry about that. We'll take care of it. You're doing a good job. Just keep it up and I'll make sure everything is okay. End quote. The third day of the trial wasn't even the day Jackie testified. He testified on the first day of the trial. Oh, please. That gesture could have meant anything. I know, right? She submitted another statement from some man named Josh, who stated that he was in the car with Jackie Jackson on October 1st of 2006, when Jackie tried to flee from the police. 
Josh said that the marijuana and vodka were in the car and that Jackie threw some of it out the window before he was stopped. According to Josh, Jackie was later charged with reckless driving, fleeing from the police, and possession of less cannabis than he actually had on him, which had nothing to do with her case. Like, at all. (laughs) Seriously. The judge's response to all of this was to point out that Jackie was one of the victims in this case and that his stepbrother Joshua Bennett was killed. Further, there is nothing in the record indicating that Jackie was an unwilling witness or that a deal was necessary for him to testify. Jackie Jackson was not on trial here. Look, I've had bad breakups, but this chick really hates her ex-boyfriend. I mean, I agree with the judge. What does any of this have to do with what she did? Like, there's crazy that calls you out on social media. Then there's that violent ex that you have to get a restraining order on and rank up your security. No joke. (laughs) So the last piece of evidence Irina provided was a statement by her own mother, where she writes at length about sitting outside the courtroom while her husband was talking to a potential juror. She states that her husband told them that Jackie had raped Irina. She also includes in her statement that Jackie was involved with drugs and how drugs may have been involved in this case. So her evidence is that her own family was jury tampering on her behalf? How does that help her? Oh, it didn't help her at all. (laughs) The judge dismissed the appeal for obvious reasons. The biggest question in my mind is how did this one woman manipulate four other grown adults of witchcraft and a hex so convincingly that they're willing to commit murder for her? Well, after doing some digging, I was able to figure out Irina's relationship to the others, and most were barely a relationship at all. Jenny was the closest to Irina, considering her a surrogate mother. Jenny moved in with Irina when she was 10 years old and Irina was 25. She hated being at her own home because she felt she was being raised by a psychotic mother and a workaholic father. Irina showed her the attention she craved. Jenny was diagnosed with a learning disability and dependent personality disorder. However, these disorders were not severe enough to excuse her part in the conspiracy, but did put her at the highest risk of being easily manipulated by Irina. She was also the youngest member of the group, being only 19 years old. Then there's Misty, who was only 23 years old and happened to suffer from a mental illness in the form of depression. This weakened sense of self and may have left her as an easy target for manipulation. She had started to pull away from the actions of the group before the August attack and may have been starting to realize what Irina was doing to all of them. They looked up to her and trusted her and she took advantage of them. I mean, as a young adult, I was definitely looking for an elder to look up to, especially during the darkest times in my life. Irina took full advantage of these girls, but it still doesn't excuse their part in all of this. Now, the others, I'm definitely questioning. Oscar was the oldest of the group at 38 years old. I didn't find any evidence of a diagnosed mental illness, but while testifying in court, he did admit to messing around with witchcraft for about a year in an effort to make people like him. He was clearly desperate to make friends, so when a group of girls that he worked with were excitedly inviting him in, you could argue that he would have been willing to go along with just about anything to fit in. Hold up. He thought witchcraft would make people like him? (laughs) Yes, because, you know, that just works for everyone. (laughs) So David is the hardest to figure out. He only knew Irina and the rest for about five days before they invaded the Jackson house. It's hard to believe that he could so easily accept such a crazy story from people he just met, enough to try to kill a 16-year-old girl. Irina suggested in her appeal that he had a criminal record, 
So it's possible that he didn't care about the hex and was in it for some other reason. It's also possible that Irina somehow manipulated him too. But we will never know because he's not here to defend himself. He was only 29 years old when he died. Now, Irina was 34 years old when she recruited and conspired to murder the pregnant 16-year-old girl dating her ex-boyfriend. She manipulated and ruined the lives of four people who considered her a friend. Her jealousy led to the death of an innocent soldier who was bravely fighting to protect his mother. She will be in her late 80s when she is released, if she survives that long in prison. It still blows my mind that she could manipulate all those people so convincingly. Listen, if any of you out there ever feel like you may be hexed or have someone telling you that you're hexed, please think long and hard about the practicality of that. Mental illness or bad luck are not signs of a hex. They are part of life. Take steps to get help in changing your situation. Your life circumstances are never a good reason to hurt an innocent person. NAMI offers support and education programs for family and individuals living with mental health conditions. NAMI recognizes that the key concepts of recovery, resiliency, and support are essential to improving the wellness and quality of life of all persons affected by mental illness. Find your local NAMI location at nami.org slash findsupport or call their helpline at 1-800-950-NAMI. Again, that's 1-800-950-6264. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions, with music by Jordan Elena. So, Steph, what's our conjure tip of the week? This week, we want to highlight the crystal amethyst. This stone is a powerhouse with many benefits. It vibrates at a high frequency, which creates a bubble of spiritual protection against negative influences. Amethyst awakens higher consciousness, meaning that it can help you make wiser decisions free from emotional confusion. Wearing an amethyst crystal can even help with mental balance and general health. This is my personal favorite stone, and it has so many uses. I have them placed throughout my home to cleanse and protect, and I even often wear an amethyst necklace. So I just got my amethyst necklace in the mail yesterday, and I'm really hoping it prevents my haters from putting a hex on me. (laughs) (laughs) until Until next time time, stay stay vigilant vigilant, conjurers. conjurers